Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm just fine. Thank you. Doggy diarrhea, huh? Yeah. Fun stuff. Oh, delightful. So, uh, what's floating in your boat? My boat? Yes. Or a dinghy or, uh, you know, ark, uh, whatever. Actually, very local stuff. The, the, the things growing in my garden is what it is at the moment. And uh, is that out of a desire to uh, have some control over the universe? No, it's just, it's just I, I, I don't really control it. I just, uh, it, it, it runs itself. I just have to, uh, you know, put things in the ground and take other things out of the ground. And it's gorgeous. Okay, well. Now, if you want to know what terrifies me. <laughs> okay. Um, Trump endlessly. And uh, what? The well, the combination of, of his incompetence and his authoritarianism and the cast of characters he's assembled around him to run his administration, which ranges from fellow incompetents to fellow authoritarians who have some idea of what they want to accomplish and are managing to accomplish more of it than I'm happy with. I, I sometimes wonder why uh, we both fear him so uh, avidly and at the same time think of him as incompetent. I think he's is one or the other, not both. Well, I think people, everyone can be competent about some things and incompetent about others. I mean, there, there's some areas in which he has very high competence and other areas where he, he seems to have uh, more uh, self-regard than he's earned. Where I think he, he is not competent, but he, he would have no idea of that. You know? But I mean, you know, that, that's, uh, uh, I was reminded yesterday of, uh, I forget what the uh, context was, but it was the, uh, uh, what was the guy's name who said, I know you are, but what about, me or I forget how that goes. It was, oh, I, I, I think you're, uh, I think you're talking about uh, Pee Wee Herman. Yes, uh, exactly. I know you are, but what am I? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a, that, yeah, I mean that's a, you know, that's a kindergarten taught, which he just adapted. But I, I, I do, I do think that there's a, a little bit of a, uh, there's a disconnect there. I think, but, but I, I feel it very much in terms of the coverage on uh, the major uh, uh, vehicles for covering this story and this outrage, uh, as it were. I, I just don't find a business model, uh, as we discussed on uh, a Gilmore Gang, which will not see the light of day because of uh, operator error on my part. Uh, so... So no, when you see Trump and Barr and uh, and their various henchmen and mouthpieces uh, talking about putting 
FBI agents on trial for treason, um, you know, you, you have to wonder to what extent is that just a, uh, a, a silly boast for the base and to what extent is it a plan? You know, I, when, when you get someone like Barr involved, it seems to me it, it's turning into a plan. When you just have Trump tweeting it out, it's, it, it seems ludicrous. Well, I mean, it's, it's certainly a, a, not a hollow threat because just on, in terms of the uh, legal obligations and the amount of money that it costs to defend yourself against this, it's a bullying tactic that I'm sure uh, has been effective. Yes. Well, I, and, and he's, not, he's not bullying the people that he's attacking. He's bullying the people who are still in a position to do him harm by continuing to investigate him. Well, I mean, you know, it, this isn't, uh, uh, I forget what the uh, term would be. This is for real. And if those people want to uh, investigate him, they were elected on the theory that they were going to push back. Uh, and uh, it's not clear whether or not they're, they feel that it's in their political interest to, to actually push back or not. But something's going to happen, right? Well, I'm just talking about the, the, the Democrats who have a, a political agenda. Uh, I, I'm talking about the people in the FBI and the CIA who are looking out for foreign interference and uh, foreign intrusions. And if, they, if, if Trump succeeds in making that personally costly, um, he's, he's shielding himself, but he's dropping the shields around the country. Yeah, and no, I, I certainly understand the uh, logic of the pushback, uh, but when I hear it coming from uh, the talking heads that are deeply associated with uh, the intelligence community, uh, I, I take it with a grain of salt. I mean, the important things about Trump's latching on to the idea that uh, the uh, George W. Bush administration's using of, you know, Cheney for the most part, I guess, uh, using the, the pretext of, uh, you know, uh, nuclear weapons or, or whatever kind of weapons, uh, weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction, yes. Yeah, uh, th that uh, does call into question the validity of players such as uh, those people, and uh, in a more modern context, the uh, secu national security advisor, uh, to you know, gin up the system in order to be able to promote uh, an aggressive agenda. I mean, certainly these things are are, are scary, but isn't the entire intelligence community uh, all about some pretty scary stuff? Absolutely, and it's very. You know, I, I find myself um, marveling at the fact that I'm looking at um, ent entities and institutions that I have been suspicious of all my life as somehow being a bulwark and protection against even scarier things. Right. So, again, my question uh, fundamentally comes down to uh, the complete failure on the part of the media to be able to uh, get their arms around what the story really is. And, uh, you know, they, there's a lot of talking about it on the uh, trouble. 
you know, et cetera, these right. words basically suggest that this is completely out of control and it's all Trump's fault when, in fact, uh, a lot of this stuff has been going on for decades. It's true. Um, but it, I, I have a feeling that, the, that a lot of this stuff that's been going on for decades has been held in a sort of equilibrium and that the equilibrium is tipping. Well, don't you think that there's uh, an argument to be made for uh, the role of popular culture in these kinds of uh, swings left and right? There must be. Would you care to make it? <laughs> You're looking to me to be optimistic about this? Thanks. No, uh, I mean, what, 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 did you, what did you have in mind when you... When you well, I just up? think that, uh, you know, the pendulum swings back and forth. Uh, I mean, when I was a child, uh, there were uh, good family friends who were, uh, you know, being hounded by McCarthy and, uh, you know, the, uh, the forces of uh, extremism on the right. And, uh, and then we had uh, Nixon uh, elected and then reelected in a landslide. Uh, and then, uh, you know, et cetera. So it's not like these things uh, have all gone the way of, uh, you know, a more, uh, I don't know what the word could be, but it's, you know, we seem to be uh, the best that we have to offer in terms of uh, the government right now is divided government, where a few years ago, uh, the definition of what was wrong with government was that it was divided. Now it seems to me to be the only possible antidote to the extremes that uh, we're seeing. Well, whether divided government is seen as a virtue or a vice depends on who's in the White House. And who's, you know, whether the dominant agenda is one that you want to resist or advance. But then, you know, we, we get into the campaign, which is the only thing that I find fundamentally uh, dynamic in terms of is a, uh, you know, a constant uh, that we have to deal with, uh, whereas the, the role of finding somebody to re uh, replace him or to move him more to some sort of version Trump he thought might well, uh, we just trying to recover from the fact that and we saw these different uh, candidates I mean I know you're a fan or at least uh, I, from a curse you know Facebook uh, you're a fan of uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, and uh, you know I listened to her uh policy discussions around uh, the tech community, and I find them to be uh, important, but also fundamentally flawed. Uh, and what flaws are you seeing? Uh, I think it, you know, she talks about the, the big vendors when, uh, you know, she says, too big, too big, too big. Okay. Uh, they're too big. Uh, what part of the 
digital system uh, is enabling all these two big companies and why are we, uh, you know, they, they seem to be somewhat uh, elusive of uh, uh, antitrust consideration because they basically are emerging out of customer choice and lower pr or free pricing. Well, what, what she's talking about is not simply too big. She, she has a much more specific complaint. Um, she says that uh, the biggest companies are platforms that compete with the vendors who are on their platforms. So if they see a good idea that's somewhat successful uh, in, in terms of a, an application or, um, or, or some other entity, they will simply either acquire it, which might be good for the people who originated it, or engineer it from inside the company and compete with them and, and cross their competition. So, I mean, that's the sense in which she's, she finds them too big. Yeah, but we see, we see that kind of uh, dynamic not necessarily playing out in an obvious way with you know Twitter, for example. They've notoriously uh, developed their third-party developers to the point where uh, they were achieving some success and having some impact on what Twitter thought of their business model, and then they moved in and basically crushed it. And you know the pendulum swings back and forth. Uh, and, you know, the dynamics of that, I, I mean, I, I personally think that uh, Twitter has improved substantially, first of all, in terms of stability. Uh, oh, yes. It actually runs. And uh, in terms of uh, being able to uh, at least surprise Wall Street occasionally uh, with some growing numbers. I mean, they may not be the behemoth that Facebook is. But it's a pretty interesting business. And uh, uh, I think it's a, a, a marker for, uh, you know, notification-based uh, communications that's extremely important to our future. That doesn't mean that it's, it's not a cesspool of, uh, uh, of bad actors uh, in some instances. But, you know, I think net-net, it's a huge uh, development in the uh, in the culture and in the political structure of the world. Yeah, I, I, yes, I, I'm not sure that uh, Twitter is on her list of uh, of companies that are uh, too big because they're both uh, platforms and applications. But my point would be that you know Facebook. I mean, Bill Gates was uh, very prophetic, I thought, in terms of the antitrust considerations against Microsoft. Uh, certainly, they had uh, an important impact on uh, Microsoft's strategy. But Bill Gates' comment basically was, don't worry, uh, there's going to be somebody coming along uh, that's going to push us out. And to the extent that they are now back uh, in terms of revenue, uh, th that would seem to be not necessarily an accurate statement. I think to include the fact that all of the web and many technologies being, uh, and I don't think which is a pretty big deal uh, in the technology community. So I, I just don't know that these kind of 
political, uh, I think it's an easy target, uh, given Facebook's uh, uh, tin ear about a lot of things. It, but it, but it doesn't can necessarily I, can I correspond. A technical, a technical uh, note. Um, I'm you argue with, with me? No, no I, I, I'm, I'm hearing Please. a strange distortion in your voice. And I don't know if it's going into the recording or if it's just yeah, I part of what I'm either. hearing. Well, is it still there? It, it, was, it wasn't just now, no. Okay, so it may have just been uh, my anxiety uh, translated into digital. Ah. And, and what, uh, yes. And so what were you? Uh, are you anxious what, about it? Where did you lose me? Oh, I never lost you. It's just that uh, it, it just sounded a little bit like you were talking through a spring. It had a little well, boing, boing sound. It's exciting. Uh, people who are listening to this will will know just about the same time that we do whether that, that happened on the recording or not. Well, yes. Well, they'll know before it because it was going on for a couple of minutes before I brought it up. Oh, because I, I was expecting it to go away and it didn't. But I think it's gone away now. So, so based based on what I was talking about, rather than the sound, uh, don't you think that there's a disconnect between uh, this kind of strategy for policy based uh, demonizing of uh, the success of tech companies, and uh, do you think that's going to be a successful uh, gambit for the Democrats versus uh, Trump? I don't. I think he's uh, he's doing pretty well with the technology right now. I mean, God help us, but uh, I wonder uh, about our skill. Or let me put it a different way. Let me ask you a question: What uh, Democrats do you think are actually using technology? Uh, in a potentially productive manner. Um, well, he's not a Democrat, but uh, uh, Bernie Sanders has been pretty good at uh, using social media, if that counts for technology. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, he's, he's, you know, he's been at it for, uh, you know, five or six years now. He's, he's really good at it. Um, uh, as, as for the others, um, it's it's hard for me to judge because I'm not I'm not doing a, a good investigation of it. I'm mainly reacting to things that I see, based on things that they manage to get into the various streams that I watch, mm -hmm. or when they ping me directly. Well, I think there's an interesting dynamic uh, in terms of the campaign right now, uh, as people sort of jockey for position, without seeming to be to, uh, you know, frantic about their diminished position. I mean, it seems like there are really four candidates right now that have a chance for bubbling up for the uh, first debate. Uh, that would be Sanders, although I think Sanders is under some pressure right now and uh, because of Biden. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, maybe, uh, and uh, Buttigieg mainly. Or I think he's got a a real shot at framing some of the talking points that uh, a lot of people seem to be either 
you know, running away from all uh, impeachment or uh, you know have a an, a policy driven campaign, which I think is going to be valuable, but I don't think that it's going to uh, pull anybody out of the point uh, four range in terms of votes. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't count uh, Beto out either. I, I'd put him on the short list too. Uh, he, 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 he comes and goes. He rises and falls, but he's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. So do you see some sort of uh, dynamic in terms of the... I was trying to sneak that in earlier, the, the idea that a disruptive, artistic, creative community can have an impact on a, a seemingly intractable problem. Uh, you know, in 68, we saw, uh, this was sort of the height of the musical revolution. There were a number of uh, artists that sort of came to maturity uh, and took over the record business and in the process also took over the uh, film business. Uh, eventually, and I think that's had some tremendous impact uh, on politics. I think that uh, I don't think Clinton's uh, President Clinton's uh, campaign would have been successful without his media savvy. Well, there are a lot of things that seem to derive from the cultural waves that were going on in 1968, including, I think, the personal computer industry. But on the other hand, uh, who won the election in 1968? Well, I, you know, it was a perfect storm. I mean, the guy who won the election was uh, not Lyndon Johnson, was the answer. Right. And not, uh, Hubert, not Hubert Humphrey either. No. Well, God, no. Uh, I mean, we all remember what that felt like. It was like, you know, Nixon may be the apocalypse, but... Uh, the antidote is not Hubert Humphrey. No, but, you know, it, it was also, in addition to the cultural things that we're talking about, it was also the height of the Vietnam War. There were, there were urban riots. There were assassinations of key figures. I mean, there was a lot going on besides the Beatles. Yeah, but I, I, I wouldn't underestimate the, uh, I mean, the media business really... Uh, came into its own in 68, 69, 70. Uh, it, it, we, you know, Bonnie and Clyde was a, a, a film that basically went completely against the uh, conventional wisdom on the part of the New York uh, film critics. And uh, it, it just basically ratified the notion that uh, you style a film could uh, up the blockbuster business of the and and bring it into uh, alignment with some of the uh, development stuff that was going on with the Beatles and the Stones and, and various people who had gained control of the production process. I mean, that was a big change and we're still seeing the impact of that. And with the personal computer, uh, and particularly now mobile, the ability to be able to continue that kind of production uh, 
you know, development of ideas and communications uh, has never stopped. It's really exploded over the last, you know, what you call social media is, to me, the flowering of, of production techniques that the Beatles pioneered. I would recommend, if you haven't, if you, if you haven't read it, and if you're interested in this, a book called Pictures at a Revolution uh, by Mark Harris. And, and what he did was he, he looked at the five pictures that were up for best picture in 1968. And they were Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, In the Heat of the Night, and Dr. Doolittle. And he, he, he outlines the production story of who pitched these stories to whom, how they got made, uh, how they went off the rails. And it, it was very clear that that was a huge turning point in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in those five pictures, you see the death of old Hollywood and the birth of new Hollywood at the same time. Um, right. And I think there was some relationship between that and what we're seeing right now in terms of streaming, uh, the realignment uh, around Netflix, uh, the sort of uh, intersection of uh, data and the tech community with the creative community. Uh, you know, there was a lot going on then, which is now starting to happen again uh, in a meaningful way. And it's, it's overturning the uh, entertainment and the, and the news business uh, in a way that might have a significant impact, maybe not in this election, but I mean, this election's already started a year and a half early. Uh, so maybe this time uh, there's going to be an impact there. But, but those are revolutions in production methods and distribution. Um, the, the thing that happened in 1968 was, was more fundamental in, in that uh, the movies were still distributed the same way and they're still produced the same way, but um, the content and the audience changed. Okay, I, I don't disagree. Uh, and what we're, what we're seeing now is uh, I think much more technologically driven than culturally driven. No, well, I'm not sure about that. Uh, I, I think that uh, the the culture of, of mobile uh, and the technology uh, power of mobile have tried to create completely new kinds of uh, audiences, and you know, for that matter, self-forming audiences. Uh, which uh, was, to me, that's the impact of, uh, of how Netflix monetizes and delivers uh, the use of user data to reflect a new economic structure for Hollywood. I think that's a pretty, uh, you know, I, I think we're, these groups are, are now being formed in real time, basically. It's not... It's not Gen X followed by millennials followed by whatever those characters. To me, it's one big pool uh, of people uh, that are self-selecting into various communications groups. Well, self-selecting and also prodded. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just starting to plow through Shoshana Zuboroff's book, um, which is called Surveillance Capitalism. And, and she looks into the ways in which uh, the data that is collected 
is, uh, is, is, is a big driver in this, in this move. I mean, what, what Netflix is doing is learning about its audience in a very fine-grained way that uh, no studio marketing and produ production was able to do in, in before. You know, before you had women's pictures and kids' pictures and teen pictures and uh, summer blockbusters. Um, but Netflix is able to do it on a much more fine-grained way uh, in terms of um, guiding their production slate and also guiding their promotion through the notification engines that they're, they're using. Yeah, uh, I, think it, I think it's fascinating. And I also think it's, uh, it's creating new uh, winners and, and new losers. And I think that, that that's going to migrate, uh, if it hasn't already begun, uh, into the political uh, environment and into the so-called uh, government environment as people, you know, essentially the, the idea that Trump is doubling down on, which is that he can uh, basically narrate his presidency uh, off his phone. Yes, but that's, that's just the most superficial part of it. I think that one of the, you know, unless Brad Parscale is simply boasting and self-serving, part of the Trump story has to do with the way they used uh, fine-grained data about people in various locations uh, to drive the Electoral College victory, even while Trump was losing by three million votes. Um, yeah, but that's... He wasn't that, losing by just... I'm sorry, but he wasn't losing by three million votes. Uh, he was winning by... Uh, 40 electoral college votes. Right, that's what I'm saying. But, but that, that was as much data-driven as it was uh, Trump narrating his own presidency. So There was the very visible level of the rallies and the coverage of the rallies wall-to-wall uh, -wall on cable TV and the tweet stream and the debates. That was all very visible. What was not so visible was what was going on in terms of in terms of targeting and motivating and demotivating potential Hillary voters. Right. But, you know, you don't forget that Hillary was doing uh, a pretty good job of demotivating her voters as well. Yes, I, I don't forget that. Although, although I, get, I get arguments from uh, her diehard supporters when I bring it up. So, what, what, this is true. Let's say Bad Parscale, who's I believe his campaign manager, is that right? Yes. Uh, if he's not just a blowhard, but also uh, accurate, and if we believe the Mueller report uh, describes uh, handing over polling data to other, uh, other things, uh, what does that say? What did, should be focused on right well they should be focused they should be focused on a data operation and I, i'm just um so what would that look like well i mean you know the, the way it's done is is simply um an update of what used to go on in in the 
19th century and the 20th century, where you, you know, ward managers would try and track every voter in their, in their ward. I mean, this goes back to what Abraham Lincoln did for the Whigs in 1840. You know, if you are, if you are a local manager, you're supposed to keep track of everybody in your ward and know whether they are for you or against you and how passionately they are for you or, or against you. And, you. and you triage that. You, you, you put all your energy in making sure the people you know will vote for you come out to the polls and making sure the people who are leaning your way will come out to the polls. And, 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 and that's where the, the victory lies. It's not so much with persuasion as in tracking and motivation. Now, that used to be done, you know, in notebooks and with uh, three by five filing cards and shoeboxes. Now it's done on a much finer grain basis. And you're not simply tracking whether someone is for you or against you. You're tracking all the issues that, they're that they are um, passionate about or that they, uh, what their fears are. So you have many more ways of appealing to them and motivating them um, and demotivating them. I think there's much more energy now on, uh, on voter, it's not quite voter suppression, it's voter demotivation. Um, so how, how, do you think, how do you think that this election is gonna shake out at this point? What, well, I think at, at this point, at this point, um, Trump is in a big hole in general. I mean, he's got this, he's got this ceiling that, that, that doesn't seem to, he doesn't seem to be able to move it and he doesn't seem interested in moving it. And there's a, a, uh, a huge anti-Trump sentiment throughout the country. So um, it's going to play out by making sure that the people who are inclined not to vote for Trump don't simply not vote for Trump, but also come out and vote for the Democratic candidate who's, uh, who's opposing Trump. But we've already seen some interesting data about, uh, you know, people getting tired of uh, his uh, tweets, for example. Yes. Uh, I think that cuts both ways. But let's just talk about it first, just in terms of the numbers. Uh, what's going on there? What's going on? I, you know, I think his act is finally getting old. Um, and he's, he's got this passionate, committed base, um, but it's, it's exhausting for the rest of us. Now, you, you have to realize that with, with Trump, it's not just Trump, but it's also the entire Republican establishment that lined up with him and said, oh, this is the guy that we can get to bring people to the polls. Um, so they're, in a, they're, they're in, a, in a fascinating position because they've made their bet and if the bet turns sour, it turns sour on all of them. But they're going to work very hard to make sure that that bet doesn't turn sour. Well, I mean, they, you know, the Republican Party is always uh, trying to stop the, uh, you know, the hemorrhaging of, of their limited uh, majority. Right. So all of so this. All of why, would they, why would they be any worse off than they always are? Um, I think they're worse. I think they. I think they are. They are. They are worse off because their bet requires them to motivate a core group of disgruntled people. 
for instance, I think that what we're seeing now with these extreme anti-abortion measures that are passing in Republican-controlled states is, is part of motivating their base because their old stance on abortion was, was running thin. Their old stance was to say we are against abortion, but to do very little about it. And, and their base was getting uh, uh, a little exhausted of, of being spun like that and dragged along and pulled along without any results. So now they're trying to motivate their base by going uh, all hog against it, full hog against abortion in, in, in radical ways that uh, seem to be, um, I think, backfiring on them. I think, I think they're going to wind up motivating their opponents much more than they vote, motivate um, their base with these votes. But where is that going to be uh, uh, transformed or translated into it's going to tra- it's going somebody to tra- who's at the head of the ticket? On the uh, I, I don't, it doesn't matter who's at the head of the ticket. It, it, it means that women across the board are going to come out and oppose what the Republicans are doing. And not just women, but men who who learn from women. All right. So, uh, so the, it's just an academic question as to who's going to actually be the uh, nominee. Um, probably. I mean, I'm overstating that, but it sounds like what you're saying. Uh, it, it probably will. Um, you know, I. I like the idea that there are uh, more candidates who are possible nominees, uh, which keeps the Republicans uh, unable to concentrate their fire. So if, you know, if, if, if Biden is the putative nominee or Sanders or any of the up and comers, um, they're, they're the ones whose heads go up above the parapet and they get shot at. Um, that was one of the things that uh, hurt Hillary so much was she was she was for years the nominee. Everyone knew it, and and there was a, a multi-year effort to to bring her down, and she didn't um, she didn't respond well to it. Yeah, but you know the uh, uh, Biden seems to be overperforming in terms of that. He's been the obvious. Uh, Jeb Bush of the Democratic Party for a long time, but he uh, he seems to be outperforming. Yes, That's the problem. Well, I think that I, 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 there there is something likable about Biden that that Jeb Bush didn't share. So the question is: is how uh, unlikable is you know the perception on the part of Republicans? Uh, that the Democrats are basically talking out of two sides of their mouth uh, and that they, you know, they're going to get in and we're going to get back to uh, the very stuff that Trump is campaigning against uh, as being the special interests of the uh, non-whites, etc., all of the wedge issues that are being used. I don't know. I mean, the way, you know, the, the wedge issues are real. The, the fears of, uh, of, of, 
of whites who, who either are displaced or feel displaced in terms of status more than in terms of actual economic hardship. Uh, you know, they're losing their position at the top of the pyramid. So even poor whites can say, yeah, but I'm white. And, you know, if you, yeah, but I'm white doesn't carry the weight it used to. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know how, how long that, that's sustainable. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think the, uh, we saw a film uh, last night directed by uh, Olivia Wilde, who's an actress mm -hmm. uh, that you may be aware of. And, uh, but she's not in this film. It's a film about coming of age, uh, two girls, uh, and it's very funny and it's extremely well directed. And uh, it, to me, it's, it, it struck me that it was very sure-handed in terms of uh, her decision not to have a, a, a role in the film but to just basically, uh, you know, this was her directorial debut. I'm sure she's directed some other things, uh, you know, smaller, perhaps the new television, peak TV kinds of things. And it just struck me as uh, uh, going outside of the uh, uh, diversity and, uh, you know, those issues and just basically step up and and take the the seat and do it and it, it felt like a, a, a we're in the middle of a, a of a transition where people are realizing that the, they have the power to uh, be able to create uh, and execute on uh, you know very effective transformative project. What's the name of the film? Uh, you know, it slips my mind now because the, all the good titles were taken about <laughs> 10 to 15 years ago. Um, well, that's enough of a clue for people to check it out. They probably have already seen it. Oh, okay. it it's very funny. And it, you, you come out of it knowing the, uh, the full range of these characters not just the lead characters but you know people that pop up and disappear and you know schoolmates and uh, the in crowd and the out crowd and it, it was like a john hughes movie but it was made uh you know today and uh, it was it was phenomenal good uh, i will look for it um so i don't know what we sell today but um We've, we've managed to talk longer than we expected and uh, I've enjoyed it very much yes so did I as I always do but particularly uh, finding out about how nothing has really changed I believe so in the 1930s that's a, a valuable insight for, for us to be able to get through the next uh 30 days until the uh, debates. So, Michael Markman, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Talk to you soon. <laughs>